Hi, I'm Chris Waddell. Every week we do a Q&A with interesting and accomplished members of the adaptive community to find how they persevered, how they innovated, how they built communities, and how they found solutions. Welcome to the Name Tags Chat Podcast. All right, welcome to our weekly Name Tags Chat Podcast. Today, I'm with Amanda McGrory. Easy for me to say, we were talking about before we came on, we were talking, I felt like I was on the starting line of a marathon, wondering why I was on the starting line of a marathon. Amanda's won over 25 marathons, including Chicago three times, New York, LA, London. New York twice, LA twice, London twice. I like to do things twice. Well, you should do things twice. If you're gonna, if you're going to do it and going to enjoy it, you want to go back and, and do it again. Really appreciate it. So. <laughs> Only Tokyo once, though. Well, well, you might well get a chance. Part of the reason that Amanda is on is that yesterday, the Paralympics were supposed to have started in Tokyo. As a result of COVID nineteen, they are postponed until the twenty fourth, I believe, of August of next year of 2021 so they will be the only odd numbered paralympics or olympics as far as i know in history you're the archivist yes i know i'm you're putting me on the you didn't prepare me for this i didn't know we were doing olympic and paralympic trivia today um games have been canceled in the past um but i do not believe they have ever been postponed and held on an odd year you are correct I think I'm right. Amanda is actually the archivist for the U.S. and Olympic Paralympic Olympic and Paralympic Committee now. So, how did can, can we do that? We'll get to Tokyo in a second because because there's just there's going to be so much there. But how did you end up as the archivist, and what does that mean that you were the archivist for the Olympic and Paralympic Committee? Um, so my my role within the USOPC. Um, is to preserve and share the history of the Olympic and Paralympic movements, the organization, and the stories of the athletes. Wow. It's the very boiled down version of it. So we collect... Um, hmm? Is that on your business card? It should be. <laughs> I haven't gotten... I'm still pretty new. I haven't gotten business cards yet. I've only okay. been there for a month. I'm going to put that on my list of things to ask for. Perfect. It's just going to be the whole back of it. Yeah, I think it would be. Exactly. Wow, that is a, a tremendous, and you are the only one though, right? You are a department of one as far as archive. I am. Um, I'm the only, I'm the only full-time employee there right now. Um, I have two contractors working for me um, who were working through the opening of the U.S. Olympic and Paralympic Museum, which is right down the street from the headquarters building in Colorado Springs. Um, but their contracts are actually scheduled to be up on September. So I want everybody to cross their fingers that I get to keep them because they are amazing. Um, and we have so much to do, especially with the museum opening. Um, the archives have suddenly become way more visible and we are getting tons of offers of donations. Um, from athletes, from supporters of the movement, um, from major donors, and then in addition, in addition to that, um, the number of requests we've had for research and photos has also skyrocketed. Um, I think for a long time, nobody really even knew that the USOPC had an archive, and now that the museum is there and so many of those artifacts are on display um, and visible and accessible to the general public, now it's just like everybody's coming in. So you're going to have to tell people a little bit about the museum 
as well. What is the museum? Why, why the museum now? I mean, this is a long time. You'd think that there would have been a museum before. There, there was, wasn't there? Um, there hasn't been in the United States. There's a small museum, I believe, at the Lake Placid Training Center. Um, and I also believe there's a small independent museum in Squaw Valley, which hosted Winter Olympic Games in the 60s. Um, but the only like official Olympic museum was the IOC's museum in Busan. Um, and so there wasn't anything in the United States um, and the archives had small displays um, within the headquarters building. And then we would also do temporary displays um, at exhibits and other places, media summits, um, assembly, those kind of events. Um, but we never had a, a permanent exhibit and archives are closed uh, just across the board. That's just like an archives thing. Um, and so it's a request only to come in. Um, and so it was really, really difficult to see any of the amazing items that we had. So this is open now to the general public so people can come and view all of the cool stuff throughout history. And this is this is from 1896 or 96 and on. Yeah, absolutely. So it tracks the there's even some um, there's even some artifacts from the ancient Olympic Games. Um, but the real history starts in 1896 uh, with the beginning of the U.S. Olympic Committee in the United States uh, sending our first team over to compete in Greece. Um, and then tracks the kind of the progression of the Olympic Games um, and then the beginning of the Paralympic Games, starting with the Stoke Mandeville Games um, until they became the official Paralympics in Rome in 1960. Um, and then it tracks it through like the Winter Games and the Southern Games, um, updates in technology, both on the Olympic and the Paralympic side. There's an interactive component uh, where you can try out some sports. You can see what it's like to compete in skeleton, um, downhill skiing. It's pretty amazing. Um, so it's actually, the, the museum itself is not a US Olympic and Paralympic Committee entity. Um, it's owned by a separate group in, within the Colorado Springs area, um, but we work together with them. Um, and a lot of our artifacts are on loan um, and on display there currently. Wow, now is there, have you come across anything that is like just the great story, this something, some artifact that nobody would know about? Are you allowed to tell me? Well, first of all, there are so many of them. Um, when I was, so before I became the archivist here, when I graduated with my master's degree in 2018, I graduated um, and basically the next day flew to Colorado Springs to start an internship in the archives at the USFPC. And uh, my first big project was a five-year inventory um, that the previous intern had started working on. And so I was just, basically um, it's closed storage. Everything is kept preserved in packed boxes. Um, and so I would pull a box off the shelf, open up the box, and then search within our cataloging system to see what was in there. And I remember just kind of like digging through a box and I pulled out a tennis shoe from Beijing signed by Serena Williams and just about lost my mind that it was just like hanging out in a box on a shelf. So is this like Christmas morning for you? I was just like, my eyes about popped out of my head because up until we hold, um, we have all different artifacts from all across the games. Um, and a lot of the items are just pins or t-shirts, uniforms that were issued to the athletes. Um, some of the items have been donated by athletes, um, like a shoe signed by Serena Williams. And then other things have just come in through the organization or elsewhere. And so up until that point, I hadn't really stumbled upon anything interesting. And then I saw that and I was like, this is the coolest job ever. Wow, so that's when you decided, right? Because you were, you were racing full time up, up until that point. We're going to take a step back afterwards. After you answer this question, we're going to take a step back to your race. Yeah. 
but but that's when you decided to become an archivist? Yeah, so I actually already finished my master's degree in library and information science at that point. I went back to grad school in 2018, um, and I wasn't really sure what I wanted to do. Um, I thought I wanted to be an academic librarian, and it's been an ongoing joke in my family that I, it took me a long time to figure it out, but I figured out how to get a degree in organization. When I was a kid and my mom would like ground me, I would reorganize my books and like alphabetize them and I was a weirdo. Um, so this has been a, this is a lifelong thing. It continues on. Yeah, moving to Colorado Springs was like kind of awesome because it means that I have like endless organizing to do now and I'm loving it. <laughs> um, but I thought I wanted to be an academic librarian Realized that that wasn't a great fit for me after my first semester. My second semester, I went and competed in Rio at the Paralympic Games. Um, so I did a, I took one class and then I was doing an independent study working with uh, Brad Hedrick, who was compiling a history of wheelchair sports at the University of Illinois. So I got to do a lot of archival research and I was like, I am pretty into this. Um, semester after that, I took a special collections class. Um, which basically we went into like the special collections room at the library where they hold like original Shakespeare works and like got to touch it all and it was like this is it this is what I want to do I don't just want to research the cool stuff I want to touch the cool stuff yeah, yeah do you get asked this question a lot how do you how did you become an archivist I do um, because it's a really it's kind of an unusual career path um, and I also picked like a very narrow field of study and interest by going specifically into like the history of Olympic and Paralympic Games uh, within the United States. And it's just so happened that it all fell into place for me. And when somebody asks you what you do, do you just throw it out there? Do you just say, I'm, I'm an archivist? And just kind I do. Of um, and then I almost always have follow-up questions that are like, okay, so what do you do then? Like, do you just like, hang out in a big like storage closet all day and like wait for people to ask you questions about stuff do you and is that true is that what you do um i do so many things i'm still learning what i do uh processing artifacts is a big part of my job both physical artifacts coming in as well as like manuscripts um, and internal documentation from the organization as well as cataloging photos um, but then in addition to that um, building relationships with athletes and donors, sharing the stories of the organization, um, and then of the athletes that we're preserving as well. It just goes, it goes on and on and on. It's really expansive. And, and for you, I mean, imagine being at the University of Illinois, right? So you guys were, in a lot of ways, that was the first real wheelchair program in yeah. the US, right? So Absolutely. you kind of grew up in some ways in an archive to a certain extent. Did you know that history while you were there? Um, it's the thing that I'm kind of obsessed with actually. And it's a big part of the reason why I decided to go to the University of Illinois and why I wanted to be a part of that program. Um, just because the, the legacy and the culture of excellence that has been built there is absolutely incredible. Um, and to just play a small part in that history was a very cool experience. Um, so this is one of those things that like kind of grew as I got older and like really realized what I was a part of. Can you tell us a bit of that history though, of, of how it happened and, and everything? Yes, I can. <laughs> so um, in the late 1940s after, after World War II, there were a ton of soldiers coming back uh, with spinal cord injuries. 
um, they had access to the GI Bill to go to college. Uh, however, there were no universities within the United States that could support students with disabilities. Um, it just so happened at the same time, there was a satellite campus at the University of Illinois in Galesburg um, that was built in an old nursing home. So uh, Dr. Tim Nugent, who I believe was a grad student at the time, set up a program uh, where he brought the first wave of students with disabilities in. They were able to stay like in the rooms at the nursing home, so totally accessible, um, and start their degrees there. That campus was shut down, I believe, in 1952. Um, and Tim Nugent uh, petitioned the university to let that first like cohort of students moved to the main University of Illinois campus to complete their degrees um, with a lot of pushback because at the time it was just kind of assumed if you were a person with a physical disability like that was it there wasn't really much sense um, in spending the money to educate you because you were no longer of any use to society um, so it became one of his really really big goals to change that mentality um, and so Part of it was through education. Um, and the other part of the program was rehabilitation through recreation, um, which moved away from the medical model of going into see a physical therapist and do your rehab. And so a part of being um, included in this program meant that you had to participate in the sports programs offered through the University of Illinois Wheelchair Sports Program. Um, and then it just kind of continued to, to grow and grow and grow from there. And this is happening at the same Stoke Mandeville as well, right? So Stoke it's having it exactly the same time. It was 1948. So this is when we missed some Olympic games, right? From 36 to 48, the 12 years from Berlin to London. Correct. And the Paralympics, or not that what became the Paralympics, Stoke Mandeville, started on the exact same day that the Olympics started. So it's about an hour north or so of London. But it started, and at that point, what I mean, I read something at one point that 80% of paraplegics wouldn't live longer than three, 80% of paraplegics wouldn't live longer than three years. That is not at all shocking to me, um, especially because they, I mean, individuals at the time just weren't getting the care that they needed. Um, and because the, the medical model was pretty much just, sorry, you have a spinal cord injury, you're no use to us anymore. And then they went and lived in a nursing home and that was it. There was no, there was no physical activity. There was no mental stimulation. There was, there was nothing. Right. And so, so you went to the University of Illinois. I assumed you went to the University of Illinois to race, but there was so much more for you there because you were a racer as well, right? A wheelchair racer. I was. So I actually ended up at the University of Illinois on a wheelchair basketball scholarship. I was recruited by Mike Frogley when he was there coaching the women's and men's wheelchair basketball team. Um, so I started playing basketball um, and that was my, that was my thing. Um, I had raced and played basketball from the age of 11 um, and planned on continuing on to do both. Um, but I had kind of hit this like meh point with wheelchair racing. Um, I felt like I was doing the training and it wasn't really paying off. I wasn't getting any faster. And at the same time, I was starting to get some attention from the University of Illinois, um, from the women's national team on the basketball side of things. And I was like, all right, well, maybe it's time that I'm going to switch over and basketball is going to be my sport. Um, and then in 2006, um, our lovely friend Scott Hollenbeck bribed me to do a marathon. And here we are. That was, well, because you also, you came up as a junior, right? As a junior, I, I think we're going to have to take the step all the way back. 
Let's Tarantino this. Okay, let's let's we'll we'll, go all the way back to the beginning. We'll go all the way back to the beginning. So October nineteenth. Uh, I don't have the year right. I I, I can't remember the year. I, I assume you can. I can. It is nineteen ninety one. Nineteen ninety one. Okay, so October nineteenth of nineteen ninety one. You are five years old, mm-hmm. and you go to get out of bed. Um, pretty much. I got up fine in the morning, um, went, brushed my teeth, was getting ready for kindergarten. And when I started to walk down the stairs, um, my legs felt really, really tight. Like all of the muscles felt tight in my legs, but I was kind of walking like my feet were asleep. Like I was kind of walking like my legs were jelly. Mm -hmm. Um, sat down on the sofa. Um, and then about a 20 minutes, about 20 minutes later, excuse me, that was it. Um, so I was, my parents actually at the time, um, I was a little bit of a problem child. <laughs> I'm just going to be straight up with that. So I had been an only child for a long time. I was the first grandchild. I had a nine month old sister and I was not adjusting very well to sharing the limelight. Um, and so at first when I was walking down the stairs, um, was when I was walking down the stairs, my mom thought that I just had a cramp. She thought that it was being dramatic, whatever. It wasn't until um, about 20 minutes later when I hadn't moved that she started getting really concerned that something was actually wrong. Um, so at that point, rushed to the hospital, um, did test after test after test, CT scans and MRIs and spinal taps, um, and I ended up being diagnosed with transverse myelitis, which is a rare demyelinating disorder. Um, it's a neuroimmune disorder. Um, it's normally triggered by some sort of like external circumstance that affects your immune system. Immune system gets confused, attacks myelin sheaths within your spinal cord. Um, without those myelin sheaths, the nerve cells signal can't transfer um, and it results in some degree of paralysis. Well, it's interesting that you say that because I read about you and Jeff Adams, who raced with us from Canada, had the same kind of thing. And, and similarly, dramatic possibly to you where his parents are like what is this kid doing like why is he acting this way and 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 going to the hospital and they're like no this this really is it this yeah. is the way that it's going to work and and, and it was difficult and, and you at one point seized control by by not eating right you that is correct um and this is something that i didn't talk about for a really long time because it was something that i was very ashamed about in my past um, but the uh, transverse myelitis is very, very rare, like one in 5 million, one in 10 million. I'm not sure what the numbers are right now, but it is, it's unusual. It's one of those things that like you go to med school and they're like, okay, you're probably never going to encounter this. Um, and they actually tried to convince my parents while I was in the ER before I'd even been admitted that when I had got up, gotten up in the morning, instead of getting out of bed, like a normal person, I rolled off of my bed into like a pile of pillows and comforters and stuffed animals that were on the floor. They tried to convince my parents that I had given myself a spinal cord by doing, or a spinal cord injury, like a traumatic spinal cord injury by doing that in the morning. That's how like shocked everyone was by this and they couldn't figure out what was going on. Um, and so if doctors don't really have the answers and they're not able to give my parents answers to what happened, who's going to be able to explain that to a five-year-old? And how are you going to make sense of it? Right. Yeah, exactly. And so for me at that point, um, the only thing that I felt like I could really control um, was whether or not I was going to eat something. And so I felt like everything else in my life was totally out of control. 
I was stressed out. I didn't know how to deal with any of this. Um, and so it very much turned into this control thing where I was like, mm, can't make me do that. You, you can make me go to PT. You can make me get in my wheelchair. You can make me do this, but you cannot make me eat. Wow. And you went down Continuing to- Continuing on with the problem child thing here. <laughs> there's, a, there's a theme. Exactly. You went to 35 pounds as a seven-year-old? I did. Um, and it wasn't until then I started working with um, a uh, like pediatric eating disorder specialist and worked through some of this stuff. Um, but it was really finding sports uh, that helped a lot for me. It, I think that I was missing that community and I didn't realize how important that it was. I never felt like I was ostracized or not included um, with the kids at school or my able-bodied friends. But at the same time, I was dealing with other things and going through things that they couldn't relate to and couldn't understand. And I couldn't articulate because I was a kid and I didn't, I didn't know how to describe that. Um, and so sports for me really started as a social thing. Um, and it started as an opportunity to build that community, um, become a little bit more independent, a little bit more confident, and then also like have this like other group of friends um, that could relate to some of those issues that my parents, my siblings, my friends at school couldn't. Well, to have peers affect. Exactly. Yep, it was that peer group. And how does that work? Because it's, it's, I never went through the junior part of it. Like junior nationals and track is this huge thing where it's a social thing and the families come and all of that. And you get to see people, but do you get to see people on a fairly regular basis, like weekend by weekend, or is it a big thing once a year kind of deal? Um, so it depends. One of the, one of the hardest parts about being involved in adaptive athletics is that it's, it's a small community, right? Um, and so there's little pockets around the country uh, that have really great programs and lots of support. Um, but if you're not close to one, you're kind of out on your own. Um, and also like just because you have a, um, a program close to you doesn't necessarily mean that there's other surrounding programs where you can interact with other people. So I was lucky growing up on the East Coast, being a part of a program from Philadelphia, there's a really well-established um, kids Adaptive Sports Program in Baltimore um, through Kennedy Krieger Institute. There's a couple um, in the New Jersey and New York area. And so I had this like kind of tri-state mid-Atlantic area group of kids, probably like a hundred of us um, between all of the programs then, and each program would hold a race on a weekend over the summer. Um, so from like May through June, every weekend, we were going to North Jersey, to Baltimore, to Philadelphia, um, and I was getting to compete. And then that all culminates with Junior Nationals at the end of July, where we would fly usually somewhere fun and exciting, like Phoenix or Seattle. Um, and then I would get to see all of my other competitors and all of my other friends that I only got to see once a year. Now, did these end up becoming like your best friends or were your best friends at school or was it a mix of the two? How did that work? It was definitely a, it was definitely a mix of the two. Of the two. Um, and it was fun because there was a little bit of crossover for me as well. Um, and so I remember being in high school, going to basketball tournaments or to races. Um, and I would invite some of my friends in high school, my cousins, some of my able-bodied peers to come and like be a part of the race, meet some of my other friends. Um, and that was an awesome for me also to be able to kind of like mesh those two worlds together. Basketball is one of those cool sports that your friends if you have extra chairs can then jump in and play basketball and they don't realize just how much their hands are going to get beaten up. Right? Oh yeah absolutely or how much it changes the not that it's like really really hard to shoot from a sitting position but it completely changes the trajectory 
Um, so that is the thing that everyone was always the most surprised about. Even like my dad, the first time he sat in a basketball chair, he's like, oh yeah, this is easy and shot it straight over the backboard. And, and you were perfectly fine with that. You're okay with yeah, absolutely. your- Absolutely. I was like, yeah, this is, yeah, you think it's easy? You wanna, does Willie come out for a, for a jog with you too? That would, that would ruin him. That's true. Absolutely. I mean, I've had numerous friends who have said that to me. Oh, I'll come, I'll come for a jog with I'll you. I'll come run with you, yeah. Um, I took my dad a couple years ago, actually. I was uh, home for a couple weeks. So I took my dad out on a jog with me on a bike. Mm -hmm. um, and he is, he moves at cruising speed and only cruising speed. <laughs> so this is our one and only jog together. Um, because it is really, really hard to roll at like five to seven miles an hour in a racing chair. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. I, I saw some of your uh, some of your your five thousands on the track, the five thousand meter finals. It looked like you guys might have been going five to seven at some point. <laughs> that so, is, you are not wrong. That's absolutely true. I didn't like it. <laughs> I can't say that I didn't think you would, but this could be training because you never know what what might. That's happen. true. You never know what's going to happen. So, so back to the Scott Hollenbeck thing. As a junior. You were really a sprinter, though, weren't you? I mean, it was like 100 meters was was the real race, wasn't it? Yeah, as I got older, I started to move away from the 100 into um, some longer stuff. But this was really a part of, this was the biggest part of my problem when I got to college, is that I thought that I was meant to be a middle distance athlete. I thought that I was going to do like the 400, the 800, I don't know why I can't talk today, maybe the 1500, um, but the, that 4-800 area was really going to be my sweet spot. Um, and it turns out I'm just not very good at those distances. Um, so as I started stretching to longer and longer distances is when I started to discover that like I started making improvements and I started kind of finding my niche. Um, but my coach at the University of Illinois, Adam Blakeney, was and is good friends with Scott Hollenbeck. Um, and the two of them hatched a plan because they thought that I was going to be a great marathoner. So they came up with this ridiculous story about a training camp and that I could go, but I could only go if I agreed to do the Colfax Marathon. And if I won any prize money, I had to turn it back over to Scott, cover my admission fee for the camp and on and on and on. And so I was just like, okay, yeah, sure. Nobody's ever going to follow up on this. Well, it turns out they did. And it turns out that I had to do a marathon. And it turns out that I wasn't bad at it. So jokes on me because they were right. And I learned about a year ago that this whole like had to do the marathon, turn over the prize money. It was all like this fabricated made up story that they were never going to enforce on me in any way. This ruse. Yeah, I can't imagine. It was, it was a ruse. That's the word. I mean, Adam is, you know, I mean, Adam is, 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 is as honest as, as things I mean, Scott is honest as well, but Scott Scott might scheme a little bit to uh, yeah. get you in there. Scott did most of the talking here, to be completely honest. I find that surprising too. Scott never does most of the talking. Um, so I did my first marathon. It was Colfax Marathon in Denver. It was at altitude. The last nine miles were a climb. There were like 400 meters of grass in the middle. I remember dodging geese. I was like, this is terrible. People who do this are maniacs. I am never doing another marathon. But I got talked into doing my second marathon by Scott three weeks later. And, and you couldn't be happier. This was a great shift. And, yeah. It's true, it was. Uh, my second marathon was Grandma's Marathon. It's in Duluth. 
It runs along the edge of Lake Superior. It's got some like nice rolling hills, a little bit of shade, little breeze. It's a fast course. It was wonderful. Um, I took, I believe, 17 minutes off of my time from my first marathon to my second marathon. And then I was like, all right, I get why people are into this. And then I just Really? Okay. So I am probably close to, I've been doing somewhere between six and eight marathons a year, um, sometimes 10 for the past 14 years. So we're getting really close to the 100 marathon mark. Do you have a favorite? Um, Are you allowed to have a favorite? This is like having a favorite child kind of thing? It's, it's really hard. Um, so I have a soft spot for Chicago. I've been really successful in Chicago. It's a great course for me. Um, being living in Champaign, Illinois for 16 years, I was kind of a hometown race. It was always fun to go up there. Um, just be, and I had a good, I have a great relationship with the organizers of the race. But also um, being in Champaign for so long, so many students from the university are Chicago-based or end up in Chicago after they graduate. Um, so I would just be friends. People would have like oh, Amanda signs. So it was kind of like doing a race in my hometown. Um, the first big race that I ever won was the New York City Marathon. So that's got a, a little bit of a special place in my heart as well. Um, and because Grandma's was my first race that I like loved, anytime somebody tells me they're thinking about like trying a marathon and getting involved, that is my recommendation. I always say that Grandma should be the first. Really? Okay. So that's, I mean, it's interesting to see how that works. The hometown thing. You've done Boston too, I assume. I've done Boston. Boston's also, so I'm tiny, right. um, which means I am not a great coaster, which means Boston is a terrible course for me. So Boston is, um, it's one of the only races that I've done many, many times. And my top finish there has been second. I have never won it. Well, I've done it a few times and I've never come close to second. So, so I don't have, I don't feel too badly for you. We were talking about it. I think that the, uh, the last time, I think my last Boston, you said was going to be your last Boston and you beat me by 11 minutes or something like that. So, uh, so, and I thought it was a fairly decent time. I was, I was pretty, I was happy to average 15 miles an hour for, for Boston. That was, that to me is like, okay, that's not bad, but, uh, but so you don't coast well, but do you, you do climb well? I don't coast well, but I do climb well. Um, and my actually my downhill overspeed is pretty good. So I can push up to 27 or 28 miles an hour. Um, but once once you hit a certain speed, your arms can't keep up with the rings anymore. Then it is based on gravity to pull you downhill. Um, and being four foot 11 inches tall and 95 pounds, I don't have that much gravity. Momentum, mass, whatever we're talking about. Physics, I don't know how it works. But the point is, there's not a lot pulling me down the hill here. Hold on, your your Team USA uh, bio is a little bit different. It had you listed at five feet and 90 pounds. I think that five feet sounds better than four foot 11 and nobody can tell anyway. So sometimes I think my license was five feet. Um, but I actually, so that was probably, my weight was probably accurate at the time. Um, but prior to the Rio games in 2016, I kind of hit a, a bit of a rut with training. Um, I went into the London games in 2012 with really high expectations, um, none of which I met. So I came out of Beijing as a four-time medalist, came into London as a defending Paralympic champion, as world record holder, um, was 26, 
very young, very confident, and was just like, I race and win medals. What do you do? <laughs> Turns out that I race and sometimes I don't win medals. Um, so that was, it was a really, really rough games for me. Um, and I came back to, to Illinois afterwards and was just continuing on training, um, continuing racing, not really seeing those gains. Um, it was the same problem I had when I was in high school where I felt like I was putting the work in and I just wasn't really seeing any of the results. Um, so 2015-ish, end of 2015. Um, hold on, hold on. Let, did you call Scott Hollenbeck? Is that what, what happened? I should have called Scott Hollenbeck. He would have talked me into doing some crazy nonsense. It would have, yes. Eating raw chicken and going and laying in a hole in the woods or something. Um, um, which, you know, I shouldn't knock it because it worked the first time around that I, he talked me into doing something that I thought was off the wall. Um, but Adam and I, um, Adam and I worked together to come up with a plan to make some changes. Um, and one of the things that we both noticed is that I performed better when I was in school. Um, and I'd been thinking about going back to grad school anyway. So this seemed like the perfect time to do that. We made some changes to my training plan. Um, I switched up my stroke. I went from a flat glove to a more curved glove, which changes the way you contact with the ring and changes some of your, your power transfer and all that technical stuff. Um, but I also worked with the nutritionist, um, Liz Broad, who was with the, um, not the University of Illinois, excuse me, with the USOPC. Um, to try to gain some weight and she had written me a uh, like muscle building protein heavy vegetarian diet um, that required me to ingest mass quantities of food that I just could not do like there was absolutely no way there just wasn't room in my body for the amount of food I needed to eat um, in order to get enough calories in and so we kind of went back and looked at what I was eating um, and I after eight years of being a vegetarian switched back to eating meat and promptly gained 15 pounds. Oh, wow. Interesting. So I know that it's different for everybody. Um, and vegetarian diet works great for some people, but for whatever reason, I just wasn't able to get the, the right nutrients, the right amount of protein that I needed in to my diet in order to gain some weight and gain some muscle. Um, so that was definitely one of the, one of the biggest things that changed. Um, it just gave me a little bit more mass. Um, both like body fat and muscle, um, which kept me warmer during the races, um, and also just gave me a little bit more power and a little bit more reserves to have some more energy going going long distance. Which I'm going to take you in an interesting direction, hopefully, on this one. But but it, it becomes functional strength. It's functional mass, right? Exactly. In one of your blogs, you were talking about the inspirational tag versus functional diversity. So, so can you explain a little bit of the stigma surrounding inspirational, but then also what functional diversity is? Is, is that something that you created? It's, it's actually the first time I've seen it. Oh, really? Um, yeah. Nope. I actually can't tell you where I saw it, um, but I just like, I really like the way that it sounds um, and I like the way that it can be used to describe uh, varying levels of ability and disability. Um, so the inspiration problem, <laughs> um, <laughs> this is, this is well known to Paralympic athletes. Um, and here is what the issue comes down to, I think. Think that it is fine, um, to be inspired by athletic performances. Athletes are by nature inspirational. Um, 
watching Michael Phelps win his five millionth medal, that's inspirational. I think the, the issue with um, inspiration, specifically with Paralympic athletes, is that's what it always pushes to. The story always turns towards the inspirational story of whomever. And a lot of times, the inspiration isn't the fact that they are, the individual is achieving incredible things. It's like, this person with a disability is driving a car. Isn't that so inspirational? Um, it's these everyday things that, sure, maybe you and I and whomever else have had to try to figure out different ways to do, um, whether we do them on their, our own, whether we do them with assistance. It looks different for everybody, but in order to exist in a world that has been created for able-bodied people without disabilities, we've had learn, we've had to adapt, we have to do these things in order to be functional members of society. Um, it's not inspirational, it's just everyday life. Um, and there's this other idea that goes along with the inspiration problem that an individual cannot have a disability and also be successful. The story and the narrative is always so-and-so overcomes their disability to win Paralympic medal, overcomes their disability to graduate from college, whatever the thing is. I did not overcome my disability to win a Paralympic medal. In fact, I would not have a Paralympic medal if I didn't have a disability. Well said, well said, exactly. It's, I mean, it's interesting, right? Cause it's like, it, it, it gets it to be effectively a two-dimensional kind of, kind of person as opposed to a three-dimensional person where you're talking about the struggle, the striving, the work, the performance, the strategy, which we will get into in talking about a couple of your races. We also have to go back because because the thing is, in being inspirational, you your first your your only gold medal, right? Only gold medal was was in the five k five thousand on the track in Beijing. And so, five for people who don't know, how many laps is that of the track? 5K comes out to 3.1 miles, which is 12 and a half laps around the track. 12 and a half laps around the track. And how fast will you do it? You were the world record holder. So when you went into that, what was your world record? Um, so the world record has fallen significantly in the past few years. But I believe at the time, my world record was 11.39. Um, just for comparison's sake um, and how far technology and training and women's athletics have come, since 2008, in order to qualify to make the US national team, um, you now have to run an 11 12. <laughs> 27 seconds faster than your former world record. Correct. I believe actually that the world record was just broken um, about a year ago by one of my Honda teammates, uh, Swiss athlete Manuela Schar, and it is now sub 11 minutes. And she ran it solo. Sub 11 or sub? Sub 11. I believe it's 1051, 10.52. Wow. Um, is... For a long time, it hovered around, um, I think for a couple of years, we were like 11.04, 11.05, 11.06, and like we're shaving off little bit by little bit. Um, but yeah, it is now, world record is sub 11 minutes, which is blazing fast. It is incredibly fast. Yeah, that is, so what is that? Uh, sub, uh, so that's like 22, you know, so that's that's like 18 miles an hour, I think, as an average. It's about averaging 18, because I think in order to run, I'm just making stuff up, so this is going to be wrong. 
we figured out that in order to run an 1110, I think that you have to average 16.9 or 17.1. So to go sub 11, I mean, it's high 17, low 18 for sure. Something like that, right? Exactly. Which is which is just flat out fast. That that gets to be a what is it? It gets to be about a 49 to 50 second quarter, 400 yep. meters, which there are a lot of people out there. Most people cannot run a 50 second quarter mile. I mean, just right. Let alone 12 and a half of them in a row. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. This just just to give it a little bit of perspective. So in your in your race where you won, yes, something significant happened, right? You ended up having to run this race twice. You ended up third yeah. in the first race. What, I mean, can you talk us through what you were thinking? Cause what, it was 500 meters to go. Yes. So another fun fact about this is that that was my very first Paralympic race. Oh, wow. Okay. I was 22 years old. I had never been to the Paralympics before. Um, I'd go, I had gone to world championships in 2006, but I didn't compete in the 5,000. I had never run the 5,000 at a major international competition before this. Um, despite being world record holder, I ran it in Atlanta um, at a UA, US based race. So first time that I've ever had a major international competition running this race, very first race, beginning of the Paralympic games. Um, and with 500 meters to go, um, I am, in the outside of the front of the pack. So we were three people deep um, with a whole pack of like eight people behind us. We were also moving really, really slow at that point. I think that we were probably about a minute to a minute and a half behind world record pace, um, just because it's different, right? Everybody's going for medals at Paralympic Games. It's all about tactics, it's all about strategy. And so those long distance races tend to go slower uh, than they do at qualifying. So anyway. Um, we are coming out of the turn into the straight with 500 meters to go, getting ready to hit the belt for the belt lap. Um, and there are two Swiss, Swiss athletes inside me. I'm in the third lane and the athlete in the middle. Um, I don't know. She's very experienced athlete, um, was the gold medalist from the Athens games in 2004. Something happened. She missed her compensator and um, compensators for anybody who's watching and doesn't have wheelchair racing background. Um, it's a steering mechanism on the chair that holds your front wheel in a set position. Um, it prevents you from needing to steer the whole way around the track to follow the turns. And so coming in and out of the turns, there's a little bar attached to a spring. You hit the bar, it turns your wheel and holds the wheel. You come out of the turn, you hit the bar back, it straightens your wheel out. Um, she missed, forgot something with her compensator. So instead of going straight, when we hit the straight, she continued turning into the athlete inside of her, who was her teammate. Um, in a kind of self-defensive move, she put her arms up and blocked her, um, pushing the athlete out to me on the outside. I kind of like popped up on his two wheels, ran over her head. Everybody behind us went down. Um, and of the... 12, 13, however many people started the race, I think only four of us finished. Um, I was totally flustered, had no idea what was going on. This was at the time the worst race or the worst crash to ever occur in a women's race at the Paralympic Games. Um, but I was just happy to come out of it with a medal. But more stuff happened, right? Because you're out in lane three, and then so you just started sprinting. Pulled yeah, back. so as soon as it happened, I kind of like freaked out for a second, like looked, 
saw that shoot was down, saw that there was just like carnage and bodies on the track. And I was like, all right, well, I gotta go. Like, they're not stopping. Um, and like, nobody really knew what was going on. So like the chaos continued coming around the backside of the track. Um, I had gotten like boxed in and cut off by a couple of other athletes. And then when we hit the straight again, um, I guess up until that point, all of the officials were trying to decide what to do. So as the like remaining three or four athletes are coming around the turn, that is the exact moment that the officials decide to start running out on the track, trying to like move equipment and help people. So we're also like swerving around like racing chairs, people that are still on the track trying not to move so they don't get in the way, officials that are like panicking and not knowing what to do. Um, so yeah, basically I was thrilled. I finished the race. I was still like on three wheels in my racing chair. I was like, cool, done. Let's never do that again. Um, Tomorrow. Off the track, went underneath of the stadium to where you prep for the medal ceremony and got a phone call from the head coach who was like, Amanda, just want to let you know that I'm protesting your race. And I was like, why the heck would you do that? And they did. And he did, and it went through. Yeah. So before the medal ceremony, I already knew that we were rerunning the race. Um, but they were like too late in the program. Everything was already set. So they were like, look, here's the deal. We're giving you the medals. Hold on to them. You don't get to keep them. We're doing this again. So I knew this as I was like sitting on medal stand with my bronze medal on, finished the race. My parents met me underneath the stadium. They were like absolutely thrilled. My mom made me take a million pictures with this medal. She put it on, my dad put it on. There's like random people under the stadium that they're calling over to take pictures. It was this whole thing and the whole time I'm like, I have to give this back. How am I going to tell her that I have to give this back? She has all these photos, oh no. So many photos, so many photos. So the 5,000 also, this started, it's my parents' least favorite race, both of them. And I think this is what started it. Sure. So I waited until I got back to the hotel room. They got back to, or to the village and they got back to their hotel room. Um, and I called my mom and I was like, I have to tell you something. <laughs> it's one of the hardest phone calls they've ever had to make. Always a good introduction to the to conversation with your mom. I know. It was like, we got to have a serious talk here. And I was like, I have to give the medal back. We're rerunning the relationship. She's like, no, no. And I was like, yep, it's going to be okay. So we reran the race about four days later. Um, the athlete that caused the crash had been disqualified and there were two other athletes that had pretty serious injuries. Um, one of them that had broken ribs um, and another one that had like the most severe case of road rash on her face that I have ever seen um, that I don't believe either of them competed. So it was a slightly smaller field. Um, the nice part for this for me about this was that I'd kind of gotten my first race jitters out um, because the other thing that I didn't mention about the first race was that I didn't do any of the things that I was supposed to do. Um, Adam, Blakeney and I had set up a whole attack plan of like where I wanted to be, when I was gonna attack, like, and I didn't do any of it. Um, so he told me to get my life together and try again, which I did, um, and ran the second race to plan um, and ended up coming away with the gold um, in a photo finish. Um, and I would like you to know that the entire time um, we were lining up for the race and warming up, my mom sat looking through the photos that she had taken of me and the family of my previous bronze medal 
fully convinced that this was my one and only shot to win a Paralympic medal, and I was never going to get another one. <laughs> Lamenting all that you had lost. Okay, so so you you sort of you diminished the drama on that though. I mean, you you said you won in a photo finish. Can you talk us through the last four hundred meters of of what's going on in this race? Do you remember the four, last four hundred meters? So, kind of, sort of. Um, what I can tell you about this as well. Um, remember how I just said that I the first race I didn't do anything that I was supposed to do. Adam Blakey told me to get my life together. Well, I only did that about seventy-five percent of the way. Okay. Okay. Well, that's 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 reasonable, though. So one of um, one of my strengths as a young athlete, and it still is, is my ability to hold a very high speed for a very long time, especially if the conditions are good. Um, so this counts for like overspeed, really hard tracks, tailwinds. I can get up to nineteen, twenty miles an hour and just hold it. So my attack plan was to throw in a couple of attacks during the race, which I didn't do the first time and I did the second time. So anytime, um, anytime the group really slowed down and got down to like 12, 13 miles an hour and we're just kind of like looking to see what was gonna happen, um, the plan was I was going to loop around the back of the pack and attack as hard as I could um, to kind of shake things up and make everyone take For 400 meters, for 800 meters, for? Um, for probably about 400 meters. My um my sprint speed is not great once i get up to speed i can hold it so the the plan was to take them by surprise make them work hard to get back up to me um and then once they once the pack reconnected um i was going to pull out kind of settle back in wait for everybody to to slow down again and then we were going to do it again um so i did do that a couple of times as i was supposed to do however and hold on one second just to explain that so you're trying to take their sprint out of them Exactly. Yep. Um, and it's always, 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 always better to be on the offensive here than the defensive. You always want to be the one attacking if you can, um, because it's putting it, you at an advantage. You know what's going to happen. It's just like if you know when the gun's going to go off and no one else does, it gives you that split second advantage um, where you're making everyone else react to you and panic and throwing you, throwing them off of whatever their race plan was. Um, so that was the plan there, which I did that part of it. Second part of it, um, because I am great with a tailwind and not so great with a headwind, um, we always wanted to, and still do, I like to set my attacks up. I feel like I'm telling all of my secrets, but I've been doing this for like 16 years, so everybody knows by now anyway. Um, I always wanna set my attacks up so that I am attacking with the tailwind and then holding my speed, ideally through the headwind. Um, for someone who is super powerful, um, for example, my teammate Tatiana McFadden, she wants to do the opposite. She is so strong and so powerful in the headwind. She can excel into the wind. Um, and then all the little tiny chicken wing people like me who cannot keep up, she'll pull away um, and I won't be able to react to that. So anyway, wheelchair racing 101. Um, but because of the way the wind was on the track that day, I was going to have to do a 600 meter sprint to finish the um, and I had panicked because I didn't know that I was going to be able to hold off the pack for 600 meters. It felt like it was too long for me. Um, so I just didn't do it. Um, and as I was deciding whether or not I was going to set up this pack, all of a sudden I was in the headwind. All of a sudden I was 200 meters out from the finish of the race. And I was like, holy cow, if I don't do something soon, like 
I'm going to run out of race. Um, so in theory, I should have started my attack about 400 meters sooner than I did. Maybe would not have been such a close photo finish. Um, but I set up my attack coming into the last turn of the 200 meters, came out around the pack um, at the end of that turn, and then just sprinted my heart out for the last 100 meters, um, which ended up being a victory of two hundredths of a second, um, which comes down to roughly two inches. And you were, you were, the, you were chasing. So I was chasing the whole way. Um, I was kind of buried somewhere in the middle of the pack when I set that, that attack up. Um, it was not, everything else about the race was great. That was a real, real risky move that did not play to my strengths. Um, and it kind of, I mean, it was the same thing. Um, it worked to my advantage that at the time, everybody was kind of like holding off, waiting for that last minute sprint, waiting to see where the attack was going to come from. Um, and luckily nobody put together an attack before then, because if they had, I would have been, that would have been it for me. And the funny thing was, so, so Deanne, uh, Deanne Roa, who, who ended up winning the first running of this, was the woman that you chased down to beat by two one hundredths of a second. That is correct. So actually, the three medalists from the first race were the same three medalists from the second race. We just exchanged colors. So did you actually have to give, oh, so you have the bronze, here's the bronze. Uh, yeah, I'll take the gold, okay. <laughs> we all just had them in our pockets when we got up to the medal stand and was this little like, um, no, they, so the weird thing was that the, um, the local organizing committee in Beijing let us keep the medals until the morning of the race. Okay. Um, so I, we did the medal ceremony. I had the medal. It was in my possession until that morning going to the track. And then we turned them over to like our head coaching staff. And then they took them back to the local organizing committee that then represented them. As your mother's crying in the stands watching you give this medal over. Yep. Then you end up winning the gold. You, you said that, that we're going to have to be, a, we're going to have to jump a little bit here because you said that London was difficult, but then in Rio, you had two, just what I would imagine are two of the most spectacular races in the 1500 and the 5,000 with the US sweeping. And not only the US, but all three of you were University of Illinois athletes. So you had lived and trained together for so long. And, and, and I watched these races today. And, and I mean, you talk about the inspirational part of it. I have to admit, like, I mean, I, I felt the, I felt a little bit of the, I felt a little bit misty as I was watching these races because it was so cool to see you guys be so in control of the race. You were just so in charge. And what was it, the 1500 when Tatiana was in front? And I think you were you were in second, mm -hmm. and 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 Chelsea moved out, and so so it was kind of like you guys just just created this wall in one, two, and three as you're coming off the turn. The Mighty Ducks patented flying V is what it was. <laughs> I didn't know it had a name. So if it's the flying V. <laughs> I mean that wasn't. We didn't call it that then because we were we were all a little bit nervous um, about whether or not we were going to be able to pull this off um, because it was so first of all, yes, absolutely incredible. The most memorable races of my career by far more memorable than winning a gold medal. I think there's nothing cooler than being on the top of the medal stand with two of your teammates watching three American flags be raised. It's amazing. 
Um, and then on top of that, just the absolute trust um, that we put in each other to pull that off. Every single person had to throw themselves out there and take a risk and rely on their other teammates um, to pick them back up and to stick to the plan. At any point, somebody could have diverted from that plan and decided like, nope, I'm doing this for me. We're going for gold. And nobody ever did. Um, we worked together with the setup of like, we set up the attacks, we came in, we planned to be three in the front and spread out that way um, and to, to set that wall up. And then to be able to do it again, like three days later, amazing. Like absolutely incredible, most memorable experience for sure. Have you gone back and watched that race on video? I assume that you have. So I actually um, just recently watched it. There was a, um, a couple weeks ago on the Olympic channel, NBC did a like highlights reel of some events from Rio. Um, and the 5,000 was one of the events that they showed. The women's 5,000 was one of the events they showed. And I was doing a like live takeover of the Team USA Instagram account at the time. Um, and that was the first time that I had watched it. And I remember in the race that we had kind of set up this plan and the whole deal with the 1500 um, was that Tatiana was going to attack really, really hard. Nope, I'm lying to you. That's not what we are going to do. Don't listen to any of that. Chelsea and, <laughs> Chelsea and I, assuming that everyone was going to key off of Tatiana, um, Chelsea and I were going to sprint off ahead. Um, and we were going to open up a really big gap. Um, Tatiana was going to let this gap open up. She was going to excel as fast as she could and come up to us. And ideally, we were going to break away and just be a pack of three for the whole race. Right. Um, like break away from the rest of the pack, put some distance on them, and then it was just going to be one, two, three, us together. Um, it just never happened that way. We had some other, I think, I mean, you do this once, people start to think that maybe you're going to try to do it again. Um, <laughs> so we had, um, we couldn't ever quite get that set up. And so I remember like kind of panicking partway through the race and like pulling everybody back to the back of the pack and being like, all right, guys, this didn't work. What are we going to do? We've got to come up with something new. Um, and that's when we set up a whole different plan on the fly um, with Chelsea coming around with an attack, um, the Tatiana and I following and then Tatiana pulling the two of us up into the front. Um, and I can't, I cannot believe we pulled it off. Watching it, I was like, once again, my parents were also watching this. Um, my sister informed me that neither my mom nor my dad agreed to watch the entire race. They just sat backwards covering their faces, even though they already knew how it ended. I, you know what? I, I was looking at your bio and then I was watching the race afterwards and I was, I was rooting for you. I was nervous watching the video, knowing the outcome of how things happen. It's amazing because it doesn't even, it was the same thing when I rewatched it. I knew how we finished. I knew we swept. I knew we went gold, silver, bronze. And I was watching and I'm like, oh man, we are in deep here. I don't know what we're going to do. Which is so funny because I watched it with the view of what was going on with the other athletes and they look so distressed because, because you did have Tatiana in the beginning who sprinted off the front yep. and like 50 meters almost or 25 meters or whatever on the pack. And then it, then it came back and, and she did a few of those other things. And you can see 
the three of you and then Chelsea's on the front for a long time and and uh, and, and 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 you guys are just maneuvering and and you can see everybody else going what is happening what is well, we didn't know either so it's fine <laughs> See, I gave you so much credit. I was always the one in the pack going, please be nice to me. Like, don't, don't, don't ruin my day right now. Like, be nice to me. Like, don't, don't kill me right now. And it looked like you guys were just in such complete control of what was going on that everybody else was, was super distressed. And there were some great athletes. In some incredible team. athletes. And I do, I mean, we really were we came in with an advantage there and we came in feeling very confident coming off of the 1500 from just a few days before. Um, and so I think that that gave us a little bit of leeway, um, even though things didn't go exactly as we had planned. Um, we all knew that we were, we were smart enough, we were strong enough and we could pull together something on the fly. So we tested out a couple of different things. Um, but knowing that we had that, that sprint and that power at the end, um, I think is really what, Gave us the the confidence there to just try something like totally off the wall that wasn't at all planned. Well, I think that's part of it, and th and that is, I'd imagine that that's part of the joy of having been at the University of Illinois is that you were surrounded by tremendous athletes, and you saw a lot of the situations before you saw them for the first time on the biggest stage. Absolutely. And I also have to say, like the the coolest thing about being in one of those situations, like. I know those girls. I know how hard they train. I know how hard, how hard they work. They're out there every single day. I know how they move. I know how they're going to set those attacks up. Um, and it's the same for them about me. And so it puts us in this position where we know each other so well, we've been working together and training together so long that it just kind of, we just slip in and slide and it just fits together. Do you feel like you had an advantage by virtue of that training and just having been around more chairs than most people? Um, I do think that we are, as a group, the entire University of Illinois group is particularly comfortable in a draft at high speed. Um, and I, I definitely think that that's an advantage, but I also think too, that just that more than anything, it's that level of trust, um, knowing that they're there, um, and that they are, I mean, it's still racing. It's still every person for themselves. Um, but if I'm in a position where I can help one of my teammates out, absolutely every single time I'm going to do that. And that's not a thing that a lot of other athletes have. And especially in a race of the 5,000 where you do have to, I mean, it's a pack race. There's different people taking turns at the front. There's different drafting. If you have two other people that you know that you can trust and you know you can set a plan up with, you're automatically an advantage to someone racing solo. Well, you also know how to help them too, don't you? Absolutely. Versus yep. other people. Because some other people who might not have as much experience could try to help somebody, but it doesn't work as well as they might have conceived it in their mind. Exactly. And it puts us in positions too where I, if I'm racing with, with Chelsea and Tatiana, Susanna, any of my teammates from University of Illinois, I don't worry about getting boxed in. I can, I can run a risky move to see what's going to happen because if I end up there, they'll make space for me to let me out. Um, and the same thing goes both ways. That was, that was in your, what was it? The mighty ducks flying V is that what it was? Which does that make, does that make Adam Emilio Estevez in this, in this scenario? Wasn't he the coach? Yeah, yep. Yeah. All right. I think so. 
That's awesome. This is good. This is an unexpected development. <laughs> Which is hysterical. What did it feel like on the on the podium when you were on the podium with with? I cried so much those two weeks. It's ridiculous. So leading up to this is like how I feel like I know I'm getting like older and more emotional. Watching the Olympics before we went to Rio, anytime somebody won a medal, I was just like a mess. It was like waterworks every single time. And I remember after our 1500 prelim, um, before we even moved on to the final, before we even set up the, the flying V, um, like trying to give an interview to like the Team USA media staff and just being like, it's just so cool. I'm so happy to be here. Um, and I think a big part of that was because I was so, the London experience was so rough and so frustrating for me um, that I made a promise to myself that I was, if I was in a position to, to win a medal, um, even just to race in Rio, that I was really going to do my best to savor that moment and take advantage of it because it is not something that everyone gets to experience. Exactly. And so, so you were, so did you cry as much for yourself when you were on the podium or, or did you cry more for the people who were, when you were sitting on your couch watching the Olympics before you left? <laughs> I definitely cried more when I was sitting on my couch watching the Olympics before I left. Um, but I got a, I got a little bit emotional a couple of times. Um, and for me, the biggest part of it was just feeling like we had pulled something off that was so cool and so unexpected. Um, and it was so much more meaningful for me to be up there with two of my teammates than it ever would have been to be there by myself. So we've had a couple of questions, a few questions that have come in for you. So first question, do you use a power meter when you train? I do not use a power meter when I train. Um, there actually, there have been some developments here, but it's really difficult to get a power meter set up to work correctly um, with a racing chair because they normally set up with gearing system and a bike, um, which makes it really easy. But that that power transfer is so much more difficult to measure when it is like gloves directly onto rubber. So we do use other things. We use heart rate monitors. Um, we track our, our time and our distance, average speed, mileage, all of that. Exactly. And and there's uh, who was it? Cormac McChesney was saying uh, saying uh, asking how you are, which I'm assuming you're doing well. But how are you? I am. I'm great. Um, we actually didn't talk about this too much, um, but the postponement of Tokyo was that was a really big thing, um, and it's changed things a lot for me. My, I feel like my life has gone like nine different directions and had all of these like really dramatic changes in the past six months. Um, first, like holding off on like professional and personal goals to pursue things with Tokyo, then this opportunity with the USOPC arising, um, and then planning on like applying for this job and starting after Tokyo, then with the postponement starting before Tokyo, moving to Colorado, um, then it being like a partially remote setup, so possibly continuing to train, Tokyo possibly still being on the table for next year, um, but basically, yeah, I'm good. How is your training? Are you still training or, or, and what are the thoughts and what did, what, what's the emotional part of not having Tokyo, not, of, of having to recalibrate? Oh, so um, training is good. It's different. I've just been getting settled in here um, and I knew that it was going to be different and I knew that it was going to be harder because a big part of, I mean, one of the biggest advantages to being in Illinois is just 
having 30 wheelchair racers to train with every day. There's a level of accountability there. Um, there's a level of motivation. Um, and you are, you show up every day at eight o'clock ready to go um, and ready to push yourself. And it's a little bit easier to fall into those habits where you sleep in a little bit later, you take some time off um, when you're training by yourself. So I'm set up, um, been working with the uh, para track and field team here in Colorado Springs to get set up with some equipment in my garage, um, met some friends up in Denver and did a push in Wash Park over the weekend. And so I'm starting to settle in and get back into all of that. So that's been good. Um, for Tokyo postponement, that was, that was a big thing for me um, because I had been planning on retiring from the games anyway, after Tokyo anyway. Um, Tokyo would have been my fourth games. Um, and that feels like, feels like a good number to me. I feel like I'm getting old. Um, and it's always been really, really important to me. And Chris and I talked about this a little bit before. Um, it's been really important to me always to be in control of my retirement um, and to have the power to make that decision. And I never wanted to be stuck in a situation where I was being pushed out of the sport, either um, because of injuries, because I wasn't healthy, uh, because I wasn't able to hit the times or make the standards anymore. I wanted to make the, I wanted to make the choice. I wanted to mic drop and be like, done. Um, so this has thrown a wrench into that plan a little bit, um, but I am, I am hopeful that it's going to happen. Um, I am going to continue to train um, and just kind of see how things go over the next year. Um, I hope I'm in a position where I can go and I can travel and I can compete, um, but at the same time, I'm pursuing some of my other goals outside of sports, um, working on my professional development, um, building my career, um, and so I'll feel that loss and I'll feel that hole. Um, but I think that this role, particularly at the USOPC, allows me to stay involved with um, elite athletics uh, without actually being an elite athlete and be a part of that movement. And so I think that that's, that's a good um, compromise. <laughs> this, is, this is my dog, Calvin, by the way. Um, so in case you're wondering, he is hungry and he wants to remind me that he would like to eat soon. Really, he's subtle. Yeah. Mm -hmm. yeah, my dog will just bark at me and poke me in the side. She'll come up yeah. and, and spear me with her nose. And that means she- Oh, are you going to sit here now? Okay. Okay. This is the way it works. Do you, have you been in contact with other athletes or how are other athletes that you know dealing with the postponement of the games? And because it's also, it's postponement, but it's like, it changes your training. It changes your, you're trying to peak for something, but it also, you're not able to compete right now right i know and that's definitely been the biggest thing okay buddy especially for um especially for athletes that really rely on um on prize money and on endorsements and on sponsorships that's made this has made that really tricky for them um and i know that it varies from sport to sport but for the most part i have to say that the the university of illinois group um with wheelchair racing has been pretty lucky um it's changed the way that the the group is been training. Um, we don't have access to the gym anymore. We haven't had access to the university's track, but there's nothing stopping you from hopping in your racing chair and going out for, for a long push on the road um, on your own. And so that's been one of the, the best things. Um, but I also think, I've talked to a lot of people, um, and I think that it's really given people the opportunity to, this is only a little bit distracting. <laughs> um, <laughs> It's really given people the opportunity to kind of step back a little bit um, and see what their goals are 
um, and what they want to do and where they want to go um, and kind of reassess those things. Um, and also to focus on, to just focus on training um, and getting back to racing, training, competing, because you love it. Well, not competing, um, but being able to participate in the sport um, and work on some of those things without the pressure of competition um, and just kind of like recenter, which has been, that's been a really nice opportunity actually. Interesting. It sounds like, it sounds like you're talking about more mental health with the athletes right now, where I would assume that there was exactly the opposite, that, that people were so distressed that they didn't know where they were going. There was so much uncertainty and, and they couldn't plan or progress potentially. And, but it sounds like you're look, you're seeing something that's entirely different. Uh, well, I think it varies too, right? Um, but I also think that, and I'm also, my experience is coming specifically from um, students and athletes in a university program. And with, under the, under the guide of our fearless leader, Adam Blakeney, who is notoriously level-headed um, and really, really good about these things. Um, and he is, he is realistic always with athletes that the Paralympic Games are great, but that is not your future. Um, yeah. The number of athletes, able-bodied, with disabilities, whatever, that actually make a long-term career out of athletics um, is very, very small. And so knowing that at some point you're going to hit retirement, you're going to have to, to move on to something else um, and being realistic about that has been, I think it's been really, really helpful um, for students in the program and those transitioning into like other areas of their lives and careers. So I do think that it varies, um, but I think that we've been really lucky um, as a part of the University of Illinois program to have a ton of support there, um, to be able to continue training and then also focus on work goals, school goals and other things outside of that too. Yeah, and I, I'd like to reinforce that point where, where Adam Blakeney, I raced with Adam and, and he is, the most level-headed person that you've ever met but i mean just an amazing coach and such a thoughtful and caring and insightful guy that yeah. having him as your coach means that you can take a lot of the emotion out of it because he's helping you through in such a such a logical way and you go oh yeah this makes sense this is going to be an opportunity this is a good healthy way for me to move forward so yeah, that is, that is awesome. Well, we hope that we get a chance to see you next year. But if we don't get a chance to see you on television next year, we'll have to come to the museum and possibly we'll get a chance to see you there. Will you, are you actually there or are you behind the scenes or how does that work? So I'm actually at the headquarters building um, in downtown Colorado Springs for the USOPC, which is a couple blocks away from the museum. But I have an exhibit at the museum, so it's kind of like seeing me. Okay, okay. Well, you also, and, and you are on the wall of, yes. you have a photo on the wall at the, at the offices as well. So, um, so I have a photo, I lied to you, um, but I have a photo on the wall of the training center. Of the training center. Okay, okay. There's a mural in the cafeteria, um, and I am okay. larger than life. Are you really? Awesome. I will have to check that out the next time. I, I did go visit you on the fourth floor the other day. You did. So it was the fourth floor. Okay. It is the fourth floor. And the next time you're there, you have to sign it. Oh, no, I did sign it, I think. Did you? Oh, you must have. I must have missed that then. Yeah, Charlie had me sign it a couple of years ago. So so I, I actually have a mural on the fourth floor of the offices, the USOPC offices in downtown Colorado Springs, which is 
pretty cool. And, and it's also, you talk about the things that you do well and the things that you don't do well. The thing that I did not do well in skiing was air. And this is this most spectacular blue skied. It was the biggest air that I'd ever caught in my life. And, and it landed and everything was perfect. And, and, and now it's immortalized on the wall. So I'm like, thank you for showing people <laughs> my one moment of being, of being good at this one thing. So Amanda, this has been such a pleasure. Thank you so much for joining us and for talking about all the amazing things that you've done. We look forward to seeing, to seeing how, how you progress in your career. Too. This is going to be fun. I, I can't, you know, I don't know that I've never, I, I don't know that I've ever known an archivist. So, so you're my first. This is. Well, I'm happy to be your first archivist. And I'm going to continue brushing up on my Olympic and Paralympic trivia. So the next time you, you blindside me with a question, I'm going to be ready. Okay. Okay. That's good. That's good. You should do that because I might just blindside you the next time too. Well, thank you so much. Thank you for taking the time out. We'll let you get off and, and feed your dog. Thank you all for joining us on the Name Tags One Revolution uh, chat podcast. You can also, if you didn't catch the whole thing and want to catch it, it will be on, on Facebook Live. You can go on to, actually, it'll be on the One Revolution page on Facebook, or you can go to the One Revolution channel on YouTube. So thank you very much. Next week, we are going to do, actually, it's going to be, a really cool tribute next week. Next week would be the uh, would be the seventy my mother's seventy third birthday, and uh, and we are going to celebrate with Donna Moore Volpita, who created the name tags program with me, and we're going to talk about the resilience that you learned from your mother. So uh, so it's going to be a great one. So tune in next week, and thank you so much for joining us. And Amanda, thanks uh, thanks again, and take care. See you later. Yeah.